I feel like I might have to apologize to you and to the viewing listening audience at home just for any potential uh, lethargy during this episode. Okay. Because I'm back to, uh, I started a new job um, like a month and a half ago and initially it was two days in the office and that was like kind of loose and now it's back to three and I did three days in a row and uh, this might be the softest thing I've ever said, but like I'm not... (laughs) I'm not like conditioned. Yeah, not, not handling it well. I'm not physically or mentally conditioned to do three days in the office right now. I mean, we just didn't have to for so long, and now it feels very strange, for sure. Yeah, the the shift was very bizarre because you know three years ago it was kind of like it was almost like a snow day kind of vibe. Oh, a hundred percent. It felt like a gift, and then it became normal, and then we had to transition back the other way. It was like, no, how do we Why? ever live that way before? Exactly, exactly. How did I feel that way about everything? Like. Coming back from COVID into comedy, I was like, I don't know how I had a day job and did this and wrote jokes and occasionally worked out and saw my husband. Like, I don't know how I did all those things beforehand. If you had moments, because I've certainly had them being like 37, where I was like, all right, so I used to do this before. I can't imagine how I would do it now. Was I just like insane back then or am I just older and more tired now? I do think about that a lot. And because I started comedy at 30, I really think about it because I'm like, how ambitious would I have been if I was 23? Like if I came right after and like, because I remember starting and, you know, I do a fun show with a bunch of people that were a year in and it'd be over and they'd be like, well, let's go out drinking. And I'd be like, no, that was it. That was <laughs> those days are over. That for was me. it. I'm already past my bedtime here. Yeah. So it's it's definitely and now with COVID it is like what well, I have gotten I guess three years older since I was doing all those things every day mm-hmm. so is that part of it too probably and you're also like trained or your your body and your mind are a little more used to just like doing less Having it's hard to get the giant momentum. pockets of I know. casual time like not necessarily doing absolutely nothing but like very casual time where you're getting things done on your own timeline and you're just kind of like okay I'm at home mm-hmm. I'm in soft pants everything is easy I know. Well, actually, here's an interesting. Since you started later at 30, do you? I like. Do you feel like? Because uh, I think the worst part about I started at 22, 23, almost 23. The worst part about starting that young is you have no shame, or you have no shame. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just being a new comic or just being young or both. Did you have a little bit of shame starting? Oh, a hundred percent. I good. had. Right. I didn't tell people. Like, I think the benefit for me is I did invite people to my early shows, but not my early, not my first shows. Like, I literally was doing it in secret. Perfect. And I feel like a lot of people who start at your age are like, oh, I recorded an album a year in, or I made everybody from my college do a bringer or whatever. I literally ran, I was going to an open mic at the Grizzly Pear and I ran into somebody that I had worked with like eight years ago in Washington Square Park. And he was like, Emily, you're never in this neighborhood. Like, what are you doing down here? And I was like, dinner with, I gotta go. (laughs) Like, I just straight up lied. And then I like, I had a show about six months in that was like kind of a, not a real show, but like a bar show or whatever it was enough that it was was real to you. It was a real show. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And I emailed a bunch of people and by a bunch, I mean like 10, but I emailed like 10 people and I was like, I've been doing stand-up comedy. It was a secret. It's not, I feel like I'm actually going to do it. Cause I was like, when I first started, I was like, how embarrassing would it be if at 30, I told everybody I was going to be a stand-up comedian. And then like a month in, I was like, just kidding. Yeah. Take it back. I take it back. So I did it for six months. I sent this email and I was like, I basically was like, if you think that's fun, you should come to this show. And if you think it's stupid, let's never speak of this again. Like, and you're right. And you're correct. Yeah, exactly. And so I definitely, had shame for a while and it also led a lot of my friends to thinking 
like one of my very close friends, like two or three years into me doing stand up, was like, Well, you just kind of were doing this to like get better at public speaking, right? And I was like, When did I say that? Like, I don't have a job that involves public speaking. I don't have any interest. In, like, I, it was just really interesting to hear people's like, perspective on it and over the the seven years I'm also 37 people have gone from being like oh this is your weird hobby to being like oh this is your side hustle so now I have a I'm I'm very much in the gig economy now I'm very much like kind of doing a day job sometimes doing my podcast which does have an income and then doing stand-up so they're now now it's like I don't know what you're doing but good for you like yeah it's hard <laughs> when you have like that many different things happening at once and like they're all kind of amorphous and ill-defined because yeah. especially people our age they're so used to like well now i'm the vice president of client success exactly. at this company and exactly. it's like what about you it's like I, do you got five minutes because yeah. i gotta i gotta, I gotta break it down for you yeah. exactly yeah. Uh, this is emily walsh by the way oh yes hello <laughs> uh comedian comedian uh would you call yourself a storyteller i have been doing it more sure okay. yeah right. yes so comedian storyteller and i wanted to have emily on because emily just got back from the edinburgh fringe festival and I have known a lot of comedians who have done that. Um, some with a lot of people with like varying stories and, and some positive, some negative, some right down the middle. And it's I, 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 all the details of it, I think, are just just very, very interesting. So, I, yeah, I wanted to like just talk through that and how it like kind of applies to, you know, your life right now and like what you're working on. So I guess if you want to take it back to, well, for, I guess, first of all, tell everyone like if what the show that you did at Edinburgh sure the the background what it is and and what what went from there so the show was called girl dad and it was half about um I'm married and uh half about whether or not me and my husband are gonna have kids and half about my dad dying when I was a kid so it was like um those two things are kind of the material that I get approached the most about after shows. It's all for the entire time I've been doing comedy. It's people being like, Oh, I lost a parent too." that. I laughed because like, some people get tight. If you're talking mm -hmm. about deaf, you know, usually they have both parents that are alive. Exactly. And if somebody's lost somebody, they're like, that was great. Like that was a great joke. And then the other thing is in the past, like two or three years, since I started doing jokes about just like impending fertility and what should I make a kid and you know, whatever. So many women will come up to me like three drinks in and be like, I just, canceled an appointment to freeze my eggs but maybe i'm gonna do it but like telling me crazy shit so that kind of evolved into me being like okay these are the two most relatable things in my life and i also um i should have been in therapy way earlier than i was but i just started a couple years ago so i've been really like diving back into a lot of dad stuff so it's kind of just was like what i was interested in talking about combined into this conversation and it was funny because i i was i only got one review while i was over there and we can get into that as well yeah. but uh the quote was this is technically a dead dad show but it is also about how much Emily, like, I forget her exact words, but I think it was like unembarrassingly and like purely loves her husband. Like it was a, it was a nice thing, nice. but it was just like, and I talked to, um, Brian Berlin about it, who was doing a show over there. Who's a New York, mostly storyteller, a little bit of stand up, And he actually gave me a really interesting perspective on it. Cause I, in my mind, every time I described it was, it's about my dead dad and it's about whether or not we're gonna have kids. And he was like, in my mind, because I do have a lot of jokes about um, how people always assume that I'm gay and like, I'm just as surprised having a husband as you are, like, et cetera, et cetera. And so he was like, I think this show is much more about you finding a partner 
that you never thought you would find like growing up and then defining what it means to be like actually in a partnership which like he said that to me like week two of three weeks and I was like I kind of wish I had like thought about that more in the direction of this show but it's also like so I'd been doing this material and I think a little bit like this the structure of this podcast in your mind I I had a little like do or die moment with Edinburgh because mm. I had always thought about it and the past couple of years have been you know COVID it, it didn't happen and, and etc and you know we still are deciding if we're gonna have a kid and I was like if we have a kid I can't do Edinburgh like yeah. that's just not realistic and there are people with kids that do it but the kids are like 12 and their dad is somehow able to take a month off and like they hang out and it seems super stressful it it seems like uh, an exception and not the rule yes a thousand percent and so i was like i have to go do this and i got some advice before that was like uh other comedians being like go for like a week check out the vibe of the festival see what you think and then do it next year but I was like, I literally don't know if I have time. Like, I might not be able to do it. Oh, so this year would have been so, your visiting year. Yeah. So I did it this year, which I, if anyone could do a visit year, I highly recommend that. Because by day three, I was like, I've done this all wrong. Like, I've made every mistake that is possible. Uh, no regrets. I still am really happy I went. But I, there was so much that I was instantly was like oh yeah, no, that's what you should have done. That's Mm -hmm. because I, and like halfway through the festival, I had a moment because my rooms technically sat 60 people. Um, And then eventually no one ever got 60 people in. So they took out like 10 chairs and it was 50 people for everybody. And I got halfway through the festival and I was like, how dare I think that I was going to get 60 people to come to this show like, I never thought, obviously, I was going to get 60 people to come 24 times, you know, obviously. But I, I was like, you know, I talked to a few people that were like, oh, I sold out a couple weekends. I, you know, this and that. You'll probably have this many people-ish, but you'll have a few sellouts. That was dependent on those people were in the free fringe, which is a whole other thing, which mm-hmm. I didn't fully understand either. And I was doing pay what you can. So I was like, I think that's the same. But, but all that is to say, I had higher expectations than I should have, I think. And that really rocked my brain a little bit. But um, the average audience attendance, and I'm I'm just going to be so transparent. And I, I really had a moment when I was over there where I was like, I should probably project success more than I am. <laughs> because so many comedians were. Like I would see their social media, and I'm not going to call anybody out, but their social media would be like, another fucking great show today, crushed it. And then we'd go have a drink and they'd be like, yeah, like five people were there. Two were looking at their phone. What you said happened didn't happen the way you said it happened. Yeah, you're just lying. Yeah. Like, you're just straight up lying. And I'm not going to tell you that because I'm going to let you protect your dignity. But I just really didn't want to do that um, while I was there or now. And so they say the average attendance of any show on the fringe is four people. And there's over 3,000 shows a day. So that makes sense between comedy theater you know dance Still, everything no it's incredible it's absolutely bananas so the average is four people a day which i didn't know before i got over there and we never had less than five and we never canceled a show that's, and that's a win mo yeah most people i know their first year they all of those things have happened so i do feel really good about that um but yeah it was it was definitely i i don't want to say ill-conceived from the start but i definitely had some like 
wrong preconceived notions about what the experience was going to be in general. Okay, so let's take it back to the start then. So you said you always wanted to do the Fringe Festival. You always had this idea. So that's kind of that kind of came first before the show, and you were like, "What can I make a show out of?" And yeah, it was yeah. the people coming it up was, to you and what they talked about. Exactly. I definitely wanted to do the festival before I had the show, which maybe was not the wrong way to do it. I don't know. And, you know, when I was over there, I kept saying, well, next time. And my husband was like, well, yeah, but next time, like, let's do the show for two years before we go. Because I wrote it in like seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I before I even started doing comedy, I was always like a fan of comedy. I was always listening to comedy podcasts. And like the people that would talk about going to Edinburgh um, just seemed very like minded to me. They were like a little more storytelling oriented a little less crowd worky as comedians, a little less like, hey, you know, my fucking wife over, you know, yeah. like just people that were insightful and intelligent. How long have you guys been dating? Oh, no. Exactly. Which I am guilty of. I've done that as a host. I've leaned on that, but exactly. still, it's, Like, it's oh, annoying. they're going to fight on the way home. Like yep. that kind of stuff. Continue. And so I just like, <laughs> I just was drawn to it as a concept because I was like, okay, you know, I, I like the idea of having an hour to, and also the stuff like, the the dead dad joke that i started my comedy career with i used to just do one dead dad joke and it was just uh me and my dad don't have a great relationship he's kind of dead to me he's actually dead to you too he's dead <laughs> which i think solid joke still tell good. it still tell it but it used to just be that and then i would move on it wasn't about him it was just like about i would slot it into whatever i was talking about so like for a while it was about my wedding and then it just became like, you know, people's relationship with their dads, whatever. But I always had these jokes that I would try that I could never really get off the ground because no one wants to hear about your dead dad on like date night. Mm-hmm. And so part of it too, is that I had this, all this material that I was like, they'll listen to this in Edinburgh. Like I can get over there and be like, this is my dead dad show. And they'll be like, yeah, that's what I like how that review said. This is a dead dad show. Like it's, oh, it's, yes. it's a known, it's a, it's a known it's genre. A trope. Yeah. It's a trope that I didn't realize was so much of a trope. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I'm a cliche whoopsie daisy like (laughs) it was not my intention I was like my dad died differently than your dad you know whatever but um yeah so I I kind of wanted to do it and then so Gabe who you've had on the show Gabe Mm Malika I went and saw his show solo which he did at the fringe before he did it in New York and then we had him on our podcast and I was describing the baby thing and the dad thing to him. And he just very casually was like, well, that's your fringe show. And I, I clearly know that he said that because he was like returning from the fringe and that was where his mindset was. But I like got off of that podcast, like zoom. And I was like, is it like, I just kind of, and I, I went back in my Google docs and I had a Google doc from like 2019. That was like possible solo show, like, things and I was like okay this is something I've wanted to do for a while like let's see if we can do it and by that point it kind of seemed like the writer's strike was going to happen me and my husband both work in in television production so we're not writers but we're not working because there is no work um so I kind of was like maybe the strike will still be happening like maybe I wouldn't be working anyway but it did just feel like I had to do it this year just for so many reasons and so once you actually decide to do it is there an application process what does that look like how do you actually get to edinburgh so that's the other thing that i just put it on the list of things i didn't know there's all these different venues that have um some of them are one-off venues and then some of them are like an umbrella of venues so like one of the venues is called the pleasance and then they have like 10 rooms that are available And there's four big venues that they call the big four. And some people debate that now it's the big five, whatever. But there's four, the Pleasance, the Underbelly. um, 
I forget the other two, but if you Googled that, I'm sure you'd figure it out. But um, you apply to a venue. And I first applied to this place called uh, Greenside. And I am so upset that I did not go with them because I talked to them and they had, I found my notes from the phone call yesterday. Actually, I was going through my notebook for something else. They offered me a room with 20 people, 20 seats. And I didn't take it. Mm. And I would have loved that because I would have sold out almost every day. Wow. And it would have been in a small room. I would have had so much fun. And I said that midway through this run, I was like, how happy would I be? Because I went to other people's shows in small, black, dark spaces meant for stand-up. Because my venue ended up being a classroom. It was like a white room. And the picture they sent me was kind of misleading. And mm. they didn't put a stage in like they said they were going to. So, so many things that just like were not ideal. And the other venue was a little bit cheaper. And I think I just would have had a, a better mental experience had I been in that room. It's almost not about the number of people. It's about like the space. Oh, 100%. And, like, how, or like the what how much empty space is yes. somewhere. And I think it was Beth Stelling. I might be crediting the wrong person, but somebody was interviewed about their Edinburgh run like years after they did it. And they were like, oh, yeah, I had a sellout run because I my venue sat 11. Like <laughs> I sold out every day and I had a great time. Did you see that in like like uh, someone's credits? Like sellout run in Edinburgh, asterisks 11 people. Oh, a thousand yeah. percent. And so many people say sellout. And then now that I've been I'm like well where room were you in but so I went with uh I I listened to Greenside but they needed a decision really quickly so basically you have to know you're gonna go if you really want to make a go of it by like Christmas and it's in August so that's yeah eight months in advance you start applying applications open for the best venues in January I started applying January, February. So I I did reach out to the free fringe, which is what Gabe did and a bunch of other people have done. And that is, um, in my opinion, probably the way to go, especially if it's your first year because you pay like a $200 registration fee or something. And then you can charge for the shows or you can do, or I think you can only do pay what you can actually. So only donation based, but people tend to donate. It's not people at least throw a couple bucks in and you're, you're way more likely to get people to take a chance on your show because it's free. And I will say a lot of those rooms are smaller. A lot of those rooms have noise bleed. So if you're doing something that's not stand up or you really don't know. And so that would be a time to talk to people who have been and said, Hey, have you been to this room? Like, can you tell me if it was loud or whatever? Cause there's a couple rooms that I did a couple late night compilation shows that were in a hostel. So it was like very loud, but it was okay. Cause it was doing five minutes at midnight on a, you know, loud whatever. Meaning like noise from other rooms, music and stuff. Oh, from okay. other rooms, right, cool. Yeah. Or other shows sometimes if their mic was, you know, just, just not meant for entertainment. So there's going to be some noise bleed and maybe you're going to have a shitty black curtain behind like this the circumstances are not ideal but nor were the circumstances ideal in my venue which i paid thousands of pounds for so Mm. might as well be free um but i went with just the tonic which is a stand-up venue and stand-up club in london and edinburgh and so my mistake was thinking that they would have a central hub where if you were like oh i don't know what to see but i know i want to see stand up i will just go to just the tonic and i will pick a show like in my mind that's how it would work they they had three sets of venues and only one of them had that vibe it's called the caves and that place um, is super old and smells very moldy and is literally caves. Like it's, literally. It's like the creek in the cave of Edinburgh. 100%. It smells the same. Lucas O'Neill actually got a review and the reviewer said something along the lines of like, the show got a five, the venue got a three. Like the sh- he is being done a disservice by this room. So I don't personally um, 
recommend just the tonic to anybody and i don't think they can really do anything to me um or nor will they listen but they that is the only place where people show up and look at the big board Mm -hmm. and i was with that company but they didn't put the other two venues on that big board oh like they have like satellite venues yes okay yes and so my venue is less than a five minute walk from there so you could have looked at it and said oh dad girl looks like something i want to see i can walk five minutes in that one direction but they didn't do that and i was in this venue uh that was a community center and the walls in all the rooms were white. But the picture that I was sent of the first year they used it last year had way more um, pipe and drape black curtains. Like they were doing more to make an effort and it had a little stage. They didn't do that and they didn't fully black out the windows behind us. So uh, there was like light leak all the time. So you were backlit? By Yeah. Ooh. So they gave us a little curtain and it kind of covered. But then there was light leak like around that curtain. And uh, the one of the lights, we had only three lights, like stage lights, and one of them did not work. And I was like, I asked the other performers, because I'm a theater person by like nature, like I used to work in technical theater. So I asked the other performers, I was like, hey, are you guys bothered by this too? Or am I being particular? Because I've literally been like paid to hang and work theatrical lights. Like, is, is this me? And they were like, no, this light sucks. And I was like, okay. So I went and talked to the venue they were like, we'll send somebody to look at it. And while I was sitting there, they sent somebody in who didn't know I was the person complaining. And it was like a 20-year-old kid. And he was like, I don't know what their fucking problem is. And he unplugged it, plugged in the other light. The other light didn't even turn on. Like, the first light was shitty. The second light didn't even work. And he was like, oh, well. <laughs> and that was it. And at the we actually ended up renting a light, me and my husband did, because it was so bad. Like, it was just so dark and we were like is it worth a hundred dollars to make the show better for the next two weeks probably like at this point in for a penny in for a pound like but yeah they just they just did not there's once you're there you can't really solve problems like you have to know what you're getting into. Yeah, and, and you no got like, to play the it. hand you're dealt, essentially. So as yeah. all this is going on, and I'm, earlier you said the average audience size for your show. You, you never had less than five. What, what was like the average audience size for the show? Probably like 15. Okay. Yeah, so always enough to make me feel like I was doing a show. And some of the five-person shows were honestly my favorite because the people who showed up were like really into it. A couple people had been like, because I would start asking people if they hung around to say something to me, I'd be like, can I ask you what made you come to the show? And some of them were as diligent as like, I sat down with the big fringe workbook. I went through, I knew I wanted to see female comics. I found you on YouTube. Here I am. And then some people were like, I was walking by, somebody handed me a flyer, mm-hmm. you know, here I am. And so. Like- like those five person shows it's like almost like there, there's no pressure like yeah it's so it just there's like a, a looseness to it do you yeah. feel that i did and i also i there is not enough to be said for doing an hour of comedy every single day like just getting up no matter how you feel about it that day being like well i'm doing an hour no matter what and a lot of those days i did a few other shows as well like i would go run and do these other compilation shows but it was I, in retrospect, I wish that I hadn't chosen something so emotionally driven. Like it is all stand up. I would call it all stand up, but it is a heavier topic. And it isn't like you want to talk about that every single day of your life, but you have to. That's what the show's about. Like, and how did you push through that and, and give that show every day? Was it just a sense of obligation and responsibility? Mostly. And I also kind of developed this like pre show 
routine because the other thing about being somebody without any pr and without any fame being over there is you don't get a lot of pre-sales you get a lot of day of sales Mm. of anything so you can wake up and look and say zero people are coming today and that never happened but i would wake up and think zero people are coming today most days so you'd have to spend your day promoting the show being like but maybe no one will come and then there was like a 10 minute gap because my husband was actually ended up able to stay the whole time because he was originally going to come for like a week. But then the strike happened and he was like, we're already paying for housing in Scotland. We're like, I might as well be here. What'd you guys do? Did you get an Airbnb? We stayed in uh, the student castle, okay. which is a dorm that is a nicer dorm. So an Airbnb, if we'd gotten a one bedroom apartment in Edinburgh for a month, it would have been about eight grand. Whoa. It is absolutely crazy. So we stayed in this dorm that was uh, maybe a little bit bigger than this room, had a double bed. So that was nice and had a kitchen, little kitchenette and our own bathroom and shower and a desk and a closet. So it had everything. The bare essentials. The bare essentials. And you're never home. You're never quote unquote home. Like we would leave by like noon every day. We'd get back at midnight, 2 a.m. because we'd be going to like other shows and stuff. Um, is there a lot of like handing out flyers too, like, oh, like, yeah. like promo? Like, like how how much time are you spending doing that every day? It really depends on the person. Um, we would do it. I paid somebody, and then Danny did it, uh, my husband, and then I did it a little bit. I'm gonna admit I did not do it personally enough. I was very bad at it, and it is emotionally really difficult to hand somebody a picture of your face mm-hmm. and have them be like, no, thank you. I know. Uh, and like the first, the first day, I don't know if you've ever done this before where you sign up for something and you're like in six months, there'll be a different person. Like in six months, I'll want Oh, you can visualize yeah, the, like, the, the, the completely new you that's going to happen on this other side of whatever exactly. process you're undertaking. Exactly. So a, I thought I'd want a flyer. I'd be like in six months, I would never want to talk to a stranger today, but in six months I'll want to do this. And then B, I, a lot of people told me to like, try to have fun with it. They were like, just try to be, you know, light, don't be thirsty, you know, whatever. And so the first day I was like, okay, here we go. We don't have any pre-sales. We're going to get people to come to the show. And I went outside and my flyer, um, that's the other thing is like, I designed my own flyer. I think it was fine. I would definitely pay somebody if I went again. I just had no idea the volume of flyers you're being handed and like that it needs to be stand out that much more but uh so i went out there with flyer first people i stopped i was like hey are you guys looking for a show today i hear the comedian is really good looking and i like put it next to my face (laughs) that was your line to be like this is funny you know whatever and i said that and they just looked at me and they were like no oh man and i was like i can't do this and i was like texting my husband being like this is horrible. Mm-hmm. Like I, cause I never barked in the city. Like I really haven't for my own show that I run at a bar. I will go into the bar and be like, Hey, free comedy, you know, in an hour. But that's like so low stakes. That's not like I got on an airplane to do this show yep. and no one's coming. So it's I, also very like no pressure. There's a show happening. Don't worry exactly. about it. Like, but yeah. You're with your friend and everyone. Yeah. But so they would fly her for two hours and then I would do what I was like emotionally up to that day, depending on what that was. Because And so, and eventually Danny, um, he got really emotionally invested in the success of the show, which was like good for the show, but maybe bad for him mentally. Like there was a point where he was like more concerned about how many people were coming than I was. Cause by like week, the beginning of week three, I was like, there is no professional 
big thing happening here. Like you are, you're gaining a lot of knowledge. You're getting contacts. You're having a good experience. That is where it ends. That's where you knew it was going to end before other people's success got in your head. Just enjoy this process. Just get what you can out of it. But I think he was just like really just driven to give me a good audience. Like he was just like, I can tell how much better it is when there's, you know, a good crowd. And so he was starting to go. My show was at 6 p.m. every day. He was starting to go to the courtyards at like two because a lot of people, there's all these courtyards that the venue set up and they're just like food court um, bar kind of places outdoors with like picnic tables and people go with the book to be like, what do I going to see today? So he would go and have like very meaningful conversations with people and oh, a like lot really of those give of himself come. to yes, it. Yeah. Yes. But then he was drained. Mm-hmm. Like he would show up to the show and he actually ended up running my light board and by that I mean turning on the lights and turning off the lights because they wanted me to pay somebody 16 pounds a day to turn on the lights and turn off the lights but he would get back in the back of the the room and I could just see he was drained and he and there was this couple minutes where we would wait every day to see if anybody came because if they came based on the flyer they usually would pay when they got there so it still wouldn't count as a Mm pre-sale so i could check and it would still say zero and maybe we had 20 people come we just didn't know so there was this two minutes every day and we had like our pre-show playlist and we would put on this one song and try to get ourselves pumped up no matter what happened and then we would just have to wait and see who came in And like some days it was amazing and so many people and some days it was so soul crushing because we both felt like we handed out 300 flyers like there's five people here like it's just so such an emotional roller coaster like unlike any other I've experienced. When you had like a bunch of people coming in on those certain days was, was there a part of you that was like oh fuck like now I really have to like put on a show. There was one or two days where I definitely was like maybe today we'll cancel or maybe today it'll be another five and then it was like 25 or whatever and I'd be like okay we gotta we gotta give them a good one mm-hmm. like they need to tell some friends like yeah. cause and I joked about it then and I, I joke about it a lot cause I think it's accurate but my demographic of people who enjoy my comedy are people who are actively trying to quit social media (laughs) and it's like can you like sign up for instagram again just to make a story like i I really appreciate where that is for you and your mental health struggle but i also really need you to help me (laughs) that is the state of modern comedy it's like if it's good for your comedy career it's bad for your brain basically a hundred percent uh, well, speaking of that, though, like you said, you wanted to showcase like a very honest portrayal of how the experience was going. Like, so were you like very um, I mean, I, I didn't like keep up with your stories every day, but you, you were very forthright with like, here's how many people showed up or here's what's going on today. Like you, you said you had people like checking in. Yeah, on you to I make had sure people you're okay. checking in on me. I never um, I never said like, oh, only five people came today, which I'm fine with having those numbers out there. I would tell people if they asked, but I. Mostly was just making stories, um, trying to get people to come. And and I remember, I'm trying to think of what they really were, but they were like me walking and talking. And one of them was like, because the other thing is like my entire audience was always women and then their dates, maybe. Like Mm -hmm. if they had a husband with them, but it was was overwhelmingly women. And so I made one that was like, hey, and bros, like, you know what a really cool like dude thing to do would be? Like, you know how to really impress a woman? bring her to a woman's comedy show, like show that you'd like watch women do a comedy. And I did like a few things like that, that I honestly thought were like light and what I was supposed to be doing because people are always like, you got to make more content. Like you got to like make it fun. Don't make it just a a request with a handout, you know? Exactly. And so I thought that's what I was doing. And then I had multiple people being like, 
how you doing buckaroo like you hanging in there and then I started taking daily um selfies and posting them with like a little synopsis of like day 24 like good amount of people but uh I'm exhausted or you know one of my favorite shows even with only five so like the I did kind of get more honest as it went but I just I I get so frustrated when we all project something that's not real and I know that that is like probably detrimental to my career like I probably Mm should have been the whole time like hey guys I'm fucking crushing it over here in Edinburgh but it just doesn't feel real to I don't know how to do that it doesn't come naturally I remember you and I having a conversation at New York Comedy Club one time maybe like it was over a year ago because it was before I started posting any kind of reels or TikToks where you were just like I've seen comics standing in the back room at a show just refreshing their TikTok to see the little numbers light up and that seems like hell yeah I don't want to be that person but at the same time you see other people where you see them in the room and you're like are you that funny? And then you go look at their social and they have 60 K followers because every single day they're making videos and reacting to TikToks or whatever. And it's just a guy's face watching a video. And I'm like, is this what I have to do to be a comedian? Yeah. I think it's like, um, you know, some people just take it a little more personally or like, and this is the problem I have. It's, It's a little too closely tied to my identity and my self-image like i really i take yeah. it too seriously i yeah. think and for some people it's just like uh, it out. it's a commercial for themselves or i don't want to see commercial because like they do put out like funny jokes or whatever but it's like it doesn't they don't take it personally no no and, and I, I take it personally i take everything personally yeah and i tie all of it to my identity and like occasionally i was trying a months ago to on a day i felt confident make a batch of videos like mm. on a day that i'm like here we go. Like, let's just make six and we'll release them over the next three weeks. But life just always gets in the way. And I would always rather be doing something like I, if there's something to be done, I'd rather be writing or I'd rather be making a clip of actual standup, even though that's, you know, editing and, and everything else. Like, it's just really hard for me to be like, Hey, what's up guys? I'm doing this. Like, this is, yeah. this, I think this is worth watching. You want to do something that's like nourishing, Yes. And I and some other people are just okay with like the more business kind of mindset of like this is kind of just this is marketing. Yeah. This is and what it also is. like volume, volume, volume. Yeah, like, the volume thing is that yeah. that's it's a it's a content treadmill. Yeah. And like I I one thing I'm very much looking forward to once I'm done with stand up at the end of the year cuz that's how this is going <laughs> is just nuking my entire online presence. Yeah. I think that I, I I hope I have the courage to follow through and like stick with it. But yeah. I did, I kind of like microdosed it a little bit today because uh, months ago I downloaded like Lemonade and Triller, which are like these TikTok knockoffs that were supposed to like kind of take off. Oh, okay. And I used them for like a month and nothing happened. So I just stopped using them. But it's like, you know what? Today I'm going to delete my Triller and Lemonade accounts and just see how it feels. And it felt so fucking good. That sounds amazing. I was talking to somebody and they were like, what's your goal professionally? And I said, um, I forget the guy's name. There's an actor who has a flip phone, like a famous um, oh, handsome um, guy. I'm thinking of Stetson Bennett, the quarterback for Georgia football. He's not an actor. Oh, no. This guy, he was in Don't Worry Darling. He's like the guy. Harry Styles? No. The, uh, he's um he's tall and blonde, and he 
had long hair after like during the promo everyone thought that harry styles spit on him chris pine chris pine chris yes. pine has a flip phone and i was telling somebody that my professional aspiration was to be able to have a flip phone and like have somebody else handle my social media and in my mind that wasn't that famous but they were like that's incredibly famous like you <laughs> like but most people run their own shit for a long time and i was like oh well i'm never gonna reach my goals then. it is funny that like the end goal of social media it feels like is to not need to get off of it yeah Yeah. just get so big on it or successful at it it's like you don't have to worry about it anymore yeah and that was part of the appeal to me of edinburgh is like i saw so many people that had a successful run that had success afterwards i don't want to keep using gabe as an example but i do think he's the model that a lot of new york comics are kind of trying to emulate right now as far as edinburgh and he still has, I think, under 10K, or he did yeah. really recently. I, no, I think he's still, even after being on This American Life, yeah. like, it's still under 10K on Instagram. But to me, it's a very enviable situation to be like, you had this long run of your show, you're doing it again, like, you're go- you're doing these fun podcasts, like This American Life, but he's also done a few others that I've been like, oh, wow, good for you. Like, Clearly more meaningful than 10,000 Instagram followers. Exactly, exactly. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, how do I get on that track where I stop worrying about this and I just worry about the content that I'm making. Yeah. Did you have, cause you said like you had to readjust your expectations or like kind of accept the expectations you always knew were the truth halfway through. Like, yeah. did you kind of go into it with like, maybe this will blow up and it'll, I guess everyone goes. In yeah. Like that? I think I must have somewhere. If you asked me and I remember telling people, my goal was to grow as an artist, to experience the festival, to work on the show. And I do think that was true. However, I got over there and there were so many Americans, um, and I didn't realize that so many of them had paid like a $5,000 or something to a PR person, just like an ass ton of money to mm-hmm. to get all the good reviews or not good reviews that just to get reviews at all and to get into the fancy parties and to do all this stuff. And you go over there and you see some people crushing it. And I, I, I don't even know how to like give numbers to it, but I would say like three to five people that I can think of off the top of my head had stellar runs, like either a ton of sellouts or really good reviews or both, or they're now getting a new opportunity because of it. And then I could say I could name 20 to 30 that had an experience very similar to mine. That was like, I did this show and now I'm home Mm -hmm. and you know, whatever. And I do think for the most part, I had a reasonable expectation of what would happen, but there's always that little bit of hope that's like, maybe, but what if, why not me? But why not me? Exactly. And I kept seeing other shows that I was like, well, this is funny too, but it's not what I'm doing. Like, I still feel like I did something over there that I am proud of and that I didn't see anywhere else. And the other frustrating thing about Edinburgh is like, and I want to, I want to start this off by saying I did not think I would win any awards. I did not think I would come out of there with any accolades. I'm not insane. I did not think that was going to happen. However, they say that the comedy award person has to go to every single comedy show, mm. and they did not come to mine. Ooh, yeah. And they they requested a comp for one day, and so my they were like, "That's the comedy awards person." And then I had five people in the audience, and they all knew each other. And I'm like. The comedy awards person is not in this group, so you're not seeing every show. And that's less for me, for justice for me, is just for everybody. I'm like, how many shows did you not go to? Right. And the way the press about Edinburgh is, is it's like the 10 best shows, the 100 best jokes, the five best women, whatever. And I'm like, you're doing this 
based on people who have good PR. Mm-hmm. This is not based on the shows that are actually out there. It's a real life algorithm almost. A hundred percent. And I think I went over there with a little more hope for a meritocracy than it is. Like mm-hmm. it's like everything else. And I, I'm obviously every day that goes by painting it with a more favorable brush because it was, I did have a lot of fond memories and I don't regret going and I would recommend it to people who could do it and were in the financial position to do it and had a show they were really proud of. But I remember sending texts halfway through being like, this place is for hot, rich people (laughs) and I am neither and I can't succeed here. Like, this is not even my fault. Like, I don't know how to be here without being hot and rich. And when you think hot, rich people, the the city of Edinburgh doesn't like, or it's a city, right? No. Yeah. yeah. It, doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't come to mind initially as like... This will be like Manhattan. Like, yeah. I'm like, I do comedy in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I've done it where all the hot, rich people are. Like... It's like, they're here too? You gotta be fucking kidding me. They're everywhere. They travel and they're better than you. And so that... That was really difficult. And I remember saying to this woman, um, and I got her name wrong every single time I said it, so I'm not even going to say it, but her show was called Vanessa 5000, and she's an L.A. comic, and it's like clowning, which I also didn't know anything about clowning until I was there. But the show Vanessa 5000, I walked out being like, this is one of the best things I've seen at the Fringe, possibly in the past five years. I love this show. And I was talking to her, And she very kindly was like, because you could tell a lot of people when they find out where your room is, they're like, oh, I don't need to talk to you anymore. Like, Mm. you're not with the big four. She was the complete opposite. She was like, tell me more. What time is your show? Maybe I can go. How's your experience been going? Like, she was being really, really kind. And she was like, how's it going? And I was like, I can't tell you how naive and stupid this sentence is going to sound, but I'm going to say it to you anyway. I did not think about the fact that 3,000 people would be bringing the best thing they ever did here. (laughs) Like, it is just really difficult to contend with that. Like, it's it's spectacular. I don't know. And it's amazing to see those shows, but you're like, oh, I probably should have worked on this for three years before I bothered spending thousands of dollars. You might not be able to do it exactly however many years from now. So it's like, it's at least... At least I've done it. But that, yeah, and that's part of the thing is just like... Yeah, you could have worked on it for a long period of time, but it had this like immediacy to it and it had like a real personal reason for yeah. doing it right now. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like I said, I have no regrets, but I do feel like I just approached it incorrectly from the jump and would have loved to be in a tiny 20 person venue and like been earlier in the day and like because even 6 p.m. I was like that's a great time but there were people with one and two o'clock shows that were crushing that were filling the room like wow uh terrence hartnett had a really successful run he sold out a bunch of shows he actually like made money um unlike a lot of people and his show was at 3 30 and he was like filling it and i was like this is the time this is fantastic once you kind of got to the end of it the last few days where was your headspace at were you excited to go home were you kind of sad about leaving the experience behind what were what was that like i had a lot of emotions because i a really miss my dog um <laughs> i just my my dog sitter had sent me pictures every day and i was like i gotta get home to my dog i was very jealous of i i have a problem in comedy where i'm just jealous of young people all the time and mostly just because i didn't do comedy in my 20s and i wish that i had but so many people um 
and don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful for having a husband who was able to come with me, but almost everybody else I hung out with was single, and a lot of them were five to ten years younger than me, and so they were leaving Edinburgh to go to France or go to Italy, or go, and like I've done some traveling. I'm not, you know, but I was like, how can you go keep going? Like, I have, I have to go home. home. Sleep, yeah. yeah, like this is crazy. So I was a little jealous of people who were like off to their next adventure. Um, but the last two shows. I think were my best ones. Um, and I, I definitely felt the last weekend we were there, like I would be back next year. Like when I was there, I was like, this will be my venue. This will be my time slot. This is probably what the show is going to be about. Like I was so, and, and almost in a like <laughs> revenge way of like, I will beat you. Yeah, festival. Sh- you, like, yeah, I'll uh, show those, you. What's, what's the Scooby-Doo phrase? Those meddling kids. Exactly. I'll, I'll get you next time. Yeah, that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. So I was like, I'm definitely coming back. And I was with a couple people that were very enthusiastically definitely going to go back. And so I was like, yeah, we're all going back. Um, now I think I'll go back at some point, but not next year. Um, but, you know, Saturday, the last show was a Sunday. Saturday was a great show with a good amount of people. And I was like, tomorrow has no pre-sales. I kind of wish today was my last show. Like I kind of wish I was done. And then Sunday we had a surprise, awesome big audience. And it was like a few people that were from New York came and like, I, it was a really nice experience to have and to have as the last show. And then I left and we went to, um, I did a couple other shows, but then we met up with some other people and I ended the night at like four in the morning at this bar that's also a double decker bus. That's a relive your twenties. Oh, I totally did. And there was like a piano and Chanel Ali was there. She only did a week of the festival, but she was like in this bus with me and she was like very high and like pretending to play guitar and like there was a piano and a tambourine and I was a hundred percent reliving my twenties. And I did have a moment where I was like, this is a magical place. This is like a, such a weird, amazing experience. I definitely want to do this again. But coming home, it is like I I would be more calculated about it, I for sure. And I don't know if that necessarily means, you know, paying somebody to do PR or just picking a different venue or just trying to get some sort of press in any capacity before going over there just being better prepared or even just all of it you know all of it yeah 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 yeah. but it's definitely just something i want to do again way more calculated like right it's like kind of like that that fantasy everybody has where it's like oh if i can go back to high school knowing what i know now you know like you can kind of do that in real life right next time yeah Yeah, no 100 percent. do you find that you're since you've how long have you been back for um, like three weeks. Okay. Do you find that uh, your stand up here has changed, or like like doing material yes. that's not uh, related to the show? Yes. I first of all, I want to throw most of the jokes that I did in that show in a fire. I'm just like <laughs> emotionally done. Yeah. Um. But something my husband kept saying to me that I really needed. I I've been focusing on this more now. There were two things he said to me like almost every day. Because if I had a bad show or if I had a small audience, he would say we're building something. And if I had a show where I felt like I didn't get a ton of laughs, he would say, like, the reason you're here is to find strength in the quiet moments. And by that, he just meant, like, to not panic if no one's laughing. Because mm-hmm. I am a big panicker if people aren't laughing. Same. I'm a comedian who's going to be like, oh, you guys didn't like that? Okay. Like, okay. And say it out loud. <laughs> and, and no one likes that. And so I stopped doing that. I made myself stop doing that over the course of a month and I don't do it anymore. 
and I... It's almost like worth it to remove oh, 100%. Your, your worst ticks, you know? A hundred percent. And I had a weekend... The first weekend I was home, I had f- like four shows in one night, two shows the next night, and all of them, I felt so much more at ease than I've ever felt as- on stage. And I was just like, whatever, man, I can take a big pause. I can do this. I can do that. If you don't like that joke, maybe you'll like the next one. And I've never been that comfortable in my life so like that alone was worth it for sure right so it kind of comes back to that initial expectation the one you actually publicly like yeah "Yeah, grow yeah grow as an artist and and have fun and and have this experience yeah 100 percent. well that's awesome to hear uh if you want to see emily do stand-up comedy she'll be on the october edition of yes you should post that at qed astoria october 5th ticket link is in the comments amazing um emily what else do you want to plug tell us about your podcast online stuff even yes. though neither of us yes, likes yes, to do yes. it yeah it's everywhere i am the funny walsh on all platforms possible um that i am on that is my name um and then i have two podcasts uh one of them is we've been going for three years now we're on the wondering network it is called alone at lunch and we talk to comedians and podcasters and you know we've had a couple olympic athletes at this point a couple nice. authors so a wide range of people um about a time they felt like the odd one out so it can be positive negative it's become kind of a nostalgia podcast a lot of people bring up high school but that one's very fun and i do that with comedian carly montag and then my other podcast i actually do with my husband danny and it's called Yeet the Rich, uh, Y-E-E-T. It started from the title, um, but we research and talk about uh, the uber-rich billionaires and um, what they think they've done for society and then what they've actually done. So that one is is very fun. We do read some books, but we're both theater majors. Like, we don't know what we're talking about. You know, like, yeah. we're not finance people. Put but a little flair on it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fun, and we've, we've got about 20 episodes of that. So, uh, yeah, the two podcasts. And then I run a show, if you're a New Yorker, um at pete's candy store the first tuesday of every month called uh golden ticket and i think that's it yeah. it's good it's a good list uh all the links will be in the comments like and subscribe again i every every episode i say like and subscribe and every episode i say how much i hate saying like oh and subscribe. in my show i had a joke um that so the end of the show i'm saying like i'm sorry there's no big conclusion i'm not ending the show by telling you i'm pregnant or that i can't be pregnant you know like i feel like i need to tell you so i would say you're gonna have to smash that subscribe button and find <laughs> if you out. want some updates yeah yeah you're gonna have to follow along and i hated saying it but i also said it ironic like i was like this is a joke but i don't even like saying it in a jokey way because mm-hmm. it's so icky it's like too close to the truth but do it yeah we're, <laughs> we're beholden to the machinery of uh the modern comedy mechanisms what the hell am i talking about it's all we have we'll we'll just end it right now all right thanks everyone (laughs) thanks for coming by emily appreciate it yeah no problem